Before we start this morning, I just want to um, tell you a bit about our next prayer event. If you're waiting till next year for our next prayer event, you're going to be a little bit disappointed. Um, probably about two or three weeks ago, I woke up early for a couple of mornings and I just had this burden for our youth and young adults of our town. And um, this um, next prayer event we have is actually prayer and fasting. It's actually for 10 days. And there is a small group of wild ones. Um, if, if you're a wild one here, just yell out. Okay. They're shy, but they're wild. But there's a group of, of, of people that actually have really got a hunger to see God move. And um, this invitation is for our whole church family. Is that for 10 days we're going to pray and we're going to fast Sometimes with prayer initiatives, we put more emphasis on the prayer. This time, there's emphasis on both. And what we're doing is a 10-day fast. Um, if you're here and you're like, hey, I've got medical reasons, um, we can get you healed before we start. Um, but maybe you've got some legitimate reasons why you can't um, fast food, then there's, there's actually a few ways that we are fasting in this. So no one will be left out. But if you're one of these wild ones, how many know that there's a scripture that says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. I actually feel in this season is a season to be aggressive, is to actually move forward in what God would have us to do. And in the kingdom, the way we're aggressive is on our knees. That's the very starting point, is to get on our knees and fight. And that's how we, it says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And, and, and these battles are won on our knees. And so, how many know that if you're in the front row of a battle, you're not actually worried about your next holiday? You're not actually even worried about what's for dinner. Because there's a perspective change. And I believe our church is in a season where the Lord has called us to fight. We've got an incredible amount of prophetic words from last year about what the Lord is going to do this year. But how many know that a prophetic word is an invitation to the more? We're not just going to sit down and wait and see what happens, but the Lord's actually calling us to be aggressive, to fight. And this 10 days of prayer and fasting is a way that you can do that. If you're interested in being part of this 10 days, it starts on the 24th of this month and ends on the 5th of March. If you're interested in doing this, come and see me. I'll add you to a private group, and we're going to see God do amazing things. There's going to be some prayer initiatives that will happen in the 10 days, but that will be, be sent through um, yeah, a private, probably a WhatsApp group. So, like I said, exciting times we live in, but God is calling us to something more. Amen? Acts chapter 2. Have you ever been reading those passages that it's just like the Lord doesn't, you just can't get, get off? And Acts chapter 2 is one of those. And I'm just going to read some scripture this morning. Um, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and stop laughing. I can hear those giggles. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Capodia, Pontus and Asia, Philia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. This is an incredible passage. If you've been in church for a little while, this is a fundamental passage that we speak about, especially as a Pentecostal church. It was the game changer in the early church, is when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. But just to go back for a moment, there's some interesting things that we should look at. We've got to remember that Jesus, he chose a group of guys who he did life with for three and a half years. He's taught them everything. He dies. Three days later, he's risen to life. And for a period of time, he's visiting them. He's appearing to his disciples. Just on a side note, how many know that if you were me with Jesus, after everything that had happened at his death, after the team had left him, after they had betrayed him, after they had denied him, after they had all run away, how many know that the first thing I would have done when I rose from the dead was pick a new team? I would have said, I've wasted three and a half years. I'm sick of these guys. For, they were with me for three and a half years and not even one of them could stay. But what does Jesus do? He does what he always does. He goes back. He appears to them. His whole thought, his whole heart is reconciliation. His whole heart is to redeem and to reconcile and to get them back. And here we see the heart of the Father depicted in Jesus, that he goes back to the very places. They're all dispersed and in different areas in their life. Some are gone fishing, some are walking on roads, and he appears to them with his heart of reconciliation. And all of a sudden, after this amount of time, the Bible says here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, 
This is after he's risen from the dead. It says that he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here we have this group of disgruntled people, followers of Jesus, that have now been told to wait. And Jesus ascends into the heaven and it says that they waited in Jerusalem. We know that that was actually 10 days. That 120 followers of Jesus were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. I can imagine that on day one, it was a fairly dysfunctional group. The text implies that we read the accounts of after Jesus' death and resurrection that the, that the followers of Jesus were doing different things. How many know that probably on those first couple of days at Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension that there was some misunderstanding, that there was some issues, maybe there was some bitterness Maybe there was some forgiveness that had to be shared. Maybe there was some disappointment. Maybe someone said, well, Peter, why did you just have to blatantly deny Jesus like three times? Maybe he turned to them and said, well, where were you? You ran away as well. And you could under understand the fractions that were going on in 120 people. But there was something that happened in that 10-day period. And I think sometimes when we read this passage, it's something that we often overlook. Because oftentimes we look at, wow, it's amazing. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Some may say, well, why did it take 10 days? Maybe it was a sovereign. Maybe God had preordained that it was 10 days and then the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. Or maybe there was something that was going on in the environment where they got their hearts right to the point where they could actually host the very promise that God was about to give them. In Acts chapter 2 verse 1, it says here that they were all together in one place. The New King James Version says that they were all with one accord. The day of Pentecost that had come, they were with one accord. They had unity. However it happened, somehow, somehow they had resolved the issues to the point where they were in one accord. In Acts chapter 1 verse 14, it, it gives us a bit of an insight of how this group of 120 gathered together. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer. The Passion Translation says they were united in prayer, gripped with one passion, interceding day and night. It says they were united in prayer, gripped with one passion, interceding day and night. The day that the Holy Spirit was poured out, Scripture tells us that this was a fairly united bunch of people. There was something that had happened since when they were all discarded over the countryside to the point when the Holy Spirit came.
In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, we start to see the outcome of the Holy Spirit that was poured out. And this is what it says. We know that after the Holy Spirit came, how's everyone doing, by the way? We're all good? Not too boring? That's good. Um, in, in Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 43, we read here that this was the outcome of, of what happened at Pentecost. We know that Peter gets up and preaches a sermon, and this is, this is the account. It said, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a picture of the revival we're praying for. Here we see that there was miracles, there was signs, there was wonders, there was breakthrough. There was no one in need. People sold what they had and they gave. There was generosity like Adrian was talking about. They met together in the temple courts. Not only did they meet in the temple, but that, that love overflowed into their homes. They took communion. They, they got together. They praised God. They worshipped God. And the favor of the people, there was favor upon them. And the Lord was adding to them daily. How many know this is a picture of revival? This is a picture of what we're believing for in our community. You know, sometimes there's a tendency, especially with younger pastors who get together and chat, and it's like, hey, what's the latest silver bullet for church growth? People are often, and they've got good, sincere hearts, but oftentimes that's the question that's being asked. Oh, what technology are you using? Uh, what platforms are you using? What's the latest strategy? How many know that this is the strategy, Acts chapter 2? It's not necessarily easy, easy, but it's simple. This is the greatest strategy that we're going to see, the outpouring of God like we've never seen before. And I think it's time we return to some of the fundamental things that have always been there. And we look at them afresh. So there's all these incredible things happening in the early church. But I love this passage because verse 42 actually tells us what they were doing to facilitate the growth. Acts chapter 2 verse, chapter two verse 42 shows us clearly there was four things that the early church were doing not only to, to see the Holy Spirit come, but to maintain this revival that was happening in the early church. Here we go. Verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching essentially is the New Testament. They devoted themselves to the Word of God is the primary focus, the Word of God. Number two says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Number three says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Most scholars agree that 
this was actually taking communion in the context of meals in homes. And number four, they devoted themselves to prayer. As I was looking again at this passage, I was struck by the fact that a lot of these things, these four things that were happening in the early church, we understand clearly. But I think there's one of them that is, is, is vastly different than what the early church were experiencing than what we're experiencing now. And that is this word called fellowship. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is this word fellowship. That was one of the things that the early church were doing that facilitated this revival that broke out in the early church. This word fellowship, the Greek word is, is koinonia. It's actually the first time this word has been used in the scriptures. And out of all the definitions of this word, the, the best definition that sums it up literally means the exchange of life. Koinonia, the exchange of life. Oftentimes when we think about fellowship, we think about coming to a service like this. And this is important, we value this. How many know it's actually so much more than that? Our corporate gathering is just the beginning. It's actually deeper. It's more intimate. This word actually literally means the exchange of life. The Passion Translation talks about this word saying their hearts were mutually linked to one another. It speaks of something deep. It speaks of something profound, not superficial, something intimate. something of covenant relationships. It speaks of something that doesn't just stop when somebody changes their mind. It, do, it speaks of something that, that people don't just stop having koinonia when it suits them, but it's a deep lifestyle of connection with one another. What's fascinating here is that on day one, there was 3,120 believers. We have the 3,000 that were saved and there was 120. This verse is, is exactly talking about this group of people. This 3,120. The fascinating thing is this was not a group of people that all thought the same. The group of people that were in the early church was that group of those names that I couldn't pronounce, it says that they came from all different nations under heaven. This was the most diverse group of people on the planet. And yet, there was something that so united them that here in verse 42 it says that they were doing koinonia, that they were doing this exchange of life. They didn't all have to agree the same. They came from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. I'm sure they thought and had a perspective about life that was vastly different from the person next to them. But they had an exchange of life. They had koinonia. They had fellowship. They had intimacy.
How many know that in marriage it's a covenant relationship? I didn't realize for the first couple of years in marriage, I thought it was all about desire. And then I wondered why my marriage was so dysfunctional. How many know it's not just desire, it's actually desire and sacrifice? It doesn't mean that you don't desire something, but what it means is desire is not by itself. There's actually an element of sacrifice in a covenant marriage that says, hey, I've come to lay down my life, which I'm sure people told me this, but I just wasn't listening in our marriage course. I'm sure they told me a lot of times, but I wasn't interested in that part of it. But I soon worked out a few years after marriage that it isn't all about desire. There's actually an element of sacrifice that goes for the two to become one. It's this thought about, and it's a biblical concept, of course, that originated there, where we actually lay our life down for another person. I think historically in the global church, we've shouted the verse, "Men should submit." Oh, sorry, wives should submit to their husbands. Who's heard that? Yeah, all the wives put their hand up. But we've actually whispered the fact that men should die. What would you prefer, to submit or die? It actually says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What it is saying is, Husbands, die. And for some reason, we've whispered that. At least in my opinion, anyway. Maybe that's because historically a lot of the men did the teaching. But anyway. Um, my, my point is this, a covenant relationship is not always convenient. Koinonia, this fellowship, this deep connected ties is not always something that's convenient. It's not always something that is just going to appease me for a moment in time. It's actually part of coming into this relationship means I've got to lay down my life and die. We see this in the early church. This is what they were fostering. This is the type of relationship that was present as the Holy Spirit was poured out and and birthing the early church. About four years ago, we we had the privilege to travel to America and we spent a year at Bible College there. And we had a couple of days break and we were in California And we had a couple of days break and so we decided to go visit the infamous and the famous Redwood Forest. Who's ever heard of the Redwood Forest? And at that point, Mia and Tom were maybe three and five. And and telling your kids who are three and five that we're going to see trees on our days off is like, whatever. I mean, we're literally living in the land of Mickey Mouse. So why would we want to go look at trees when we can go to Disneyland? And so we finally convinced them that this was a really good idea. We had heard about the Redwood Forest. And so we drove about three hours. And you can imagine, you know, already trying to coax them into the car to go look at trees. And then it was like, Daddy, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Um, Anyway, we finally arrived in this Redwood Forest. And... There's actually a, one of the main forests there, there's actually a road that runs 
through it, and it's called the Land of the Giants. And the road runs through this uh, uh, redwood forest, and it's a little bit like Melania or Montville. It's got, it's got cafes along, along the road, and it's amazing, and it's a bit of a touristy area, and you just drive along and you get out, and you just are overwhelmed by these incredible trees. We drove, we drove there and we spent, I think it was a day and a half, just looking at trees. It was amazing. I'm not a big tree lover, but honestly, I was blown away at these trees. We step out of our car. There is trees there that are over 100 meters tall. Now, 100 meters tall, when I say that, it doesn't seem big because we're thinking, I can walk 100 meters, that's easy. But you go up 100 meters, that is massive. These trees are over seven meters in diameter. Seven meters. It's, it's like, it's like fr- from that wall to here in diameter, these trees. There's actually a part of this road or this park where they've actually chiseled out, ch- chiseled, not, not the best word, but they've actually cut out and, and your cars actually drive through it. The road actually goes underneath a whole tree. These cars are driving in a tree th- through this stump. And I remember just sitting there and just being overwhelmed by creation and standing in this forest, just thinking like dinosaurs were about to break out of the landscape somewhere. But I was just overwhelmed by the, the vast, the extent of it. Like I said, we spent like a day and a half there. Even the kids thought it was amazing. We're taking photos, we're taking heaps of photos. And of course, you look at them later and it's just like, it's just a tree. And it never does it, it never does it justice, but it was an amazing experience. How many know that you might not know, but this the redwood uh, trees are actually the largest and tallest species of trees in the world. They're estimated to be between there's trees there that are estimated to be between fifteen hundred and two thousand years old. It's incredible. But, but, but the amazing thing about these trees is, is that they're so high, but they've been there so long. Trees that we have in this country, they're like gum trees or something that are big. Let's say that there's a gum tree that's 50 meters tall. How many know that it's probably got a taproot of 30 meters? It's, it's big underground as well. Redwood trees, over a 100 meter tall tree, has a taproot of less than two meters. What they do is, they spread their roots out underground and they go out in all directions. They actually lock onto the roots of the other redwood trees. So if you had a look underground, it is a spider web of roots that are just locking into each other. It's incredible because right here, they're, they're situated on the coast. And so for 2,000 years, literally 2,000 years, the storms from the Pacific Ocean have blown up And the first thing a a ferocious storm hits is the redwood trees. And for 1,500 to 2,000 years, these trees have been snugging in just a little bit tighter, have been just curling their roots together even tighter. And these storms constantly, year after year, hit them and they stand strong. You will never find a redwood tree by itself because it's been taken out by a storm you will only find them together because 
of their ability to, to tie their roots together underground, which gives them their strength. I would like to suggest that this illustration of these redwood trees clearly depicts this word koinonia that is depicted in Acts chapter 2 in the early church. It's a place where we come together. It's a place where we allow our lives to exchange with other people. It's a place where we, we, we don't just leave because we get offended. It's a place where we, we walk through the mess. It's a place where we have awkward conversations. It's a place where it's vulnerable. Sometimes it's really ordinary. Sometimes there's lots of apologies. Sometimes there's lots of mess. But what we do is when a storm comes and life hits us, we get together, we get a little bit closer. We hold on, we go deeper. Right now, right through the body of Christ, there's people all over the place that are sitting in isolation. Since COVID, it's caused people to just leave the church and sit in isolation. And everyone's got a legitimate reason why. But that's not the point. The point is that the Lord is calling us to this. This type of fellowship, this type of koinonia, where, hey, some rough stuff happens in church. If someone hasn't offended you yet, just hang around. The point is that we get up, we have the awkward conversations. We walk through the mess with each other and we lean in. My natural tendency if if somebody disagrees with me is to isolate myself. But here we see that this is the opposite that happens. When there's stuff we've got to walk through, when there's things that have happened, it's like, no, 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 no. This coin and needer actually means we grab each other closer, we go even deeper, and we lean in at that point of strength. This is what we do. I believe this is what we do in this Hope Point family. We don't withdraw when somebody says something that offends us. If we need to, we go have the difficult conversation. If someone does something to us that offends us or is uncomfortable or someone encourages or challenges us, we walk through the mess together. We don't back away. I'm also speaking this prophetically. We don't back away. We lean in and we do life together. I want to encourage you to get a, a group of people you can run with. Coming to church on a Sunday is amazing. But if you want growth, if you want to create an atmosphere like in, in the early church here, you need to get a small group of people you can run with, where you can allow your lives to engage with theirs, where there can be an exchange of life, where you can be vulnerable, where you can show them the, what's going on in your heart, where you can, an area where you can trust, where you can allow your roots to go down deep. So what does it look like? Or how do we gauge our level that we're of koinonia? Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, well, I don't know, am I, 
Am I doing this? Am I not? Am I doing it a little bit? Am I doing it a lot? I've got five questions here and these questions are from Loving on Purpose, um, Danny Silk from Loving on Purpose. If you haven't read any of Danny Silk's stuff, it's, it, it, he's an incredible author. He deals a lot around loving yourself well, healthy marriages, healthy families, um, keeping your love on that, those, type of, those type of things. There's five questions here that I'll propose this morning. Number one, do I have a desire to grow and do I allow others to influence my decisions? Number one, do I have a desire to grow and do I allow others to influence my decisions? Number two, do I intentionally pursue connection with others? Do I intentionally pursue connections with others? Once again, these are questions to just generate some thought processes in our life. Number three, am I vulnerable? Do I let people see my heart? Number three, am I vulnerable? Do I let people see my heart? Or do I walk around with my heart locked down like Fort Knox? Number four, do I address issues from the past in my pursuit for emotional healing? Do I address the things from the past in my pursuit for emotional healing? It's so easy to sweep things under the carpet. It's so easy to do life and it's like, hang on, no, nah, we can sweep that under the carpet. We're not going to bring that up. But in our pursuit for emotional healing of, of health, we've got to have safe places where we can address this stuff or we can do it in a, in a sense of community. Number five, do I value connections over my own opinions or do I only associate with people I agree with? Number five, do I value connections over my opinions? This is huge. Is your want to be right bigger than your value for people and connections and koinonia? Because usually you can't have both. That's my experience anyway. Usually you can't have both. Sometimes it's laying down our want to be right to actually die once again, using that metaphorically, to die and actually lean into a community, lean into relation, lean into koinonia, as here in Acts chapter 2. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us all that the Lord would give us grace and courage to go even deeper in this area of fellowship, in this area of intimacy with one another. But before I do that, maybe you're here and you're like, hey, I don't even know the Lord this morning. You're talking about the importance of relationships with each other, and that is important, but let me say there is one more important relationship. That's our in relationship with God. And covenant relationships are great with each other, but the most important covenant relationship you'll make is with Jesus. And so maybe you're here as, as, as people just bow their head in a moment of reflection. If you're here this morning and you've never given God your life, 
you've never experienced your sins forgiven, would you just raise your hand? I want to include you in a prayer just before we keep going. Anyone here, you just say, today I want to make a decision for the Lord. Maybe you've done it before. Maybe this is the day that you say, hey, I want to, I want to make a decision this morning. Just raise your hand so I can see it. And once I see it, just put your hand down. If there's anyone this morning wants to make a decision to come in a relationship with God, to have their sins forgiven, to be able to stand in right standing before God, just one more time, just put your hand up if there's anyone. Anyone. Thank you. I see that hand down the back. If there's anyone else this morning, you just want to say, hey, I want to be right with God. I want my sins forgiven. There's one person this morning that wants to make a covenant with God. So this morning, would everyone repeat this prayer after me? Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. And today of my own free will, I choose you. And I'm going to live the rest of my life for you. Amen. Why don't we celebrate that this morning? I want to pray for us all that we would go deeper in our relationships. It's not about so that people would see, hey, there's, a, there's amazing things happening. They're like the Redwood Forest. It's actually so that Jesus would be glorified. It's actually so that in John, I think it talks about where, where Jesus says, hey, may people so see your love that they will glorify me. May people come into this Hope Point family and so see the love that we have for each other that they will say there must be a God. And so why don't we pray together? Lord, here we are this morning. Lord, we know that in our own strength, we can't do anything, especially not build community, build intimacy with one another, build koinonia, covenant relationships as you've called us to do. And right now, Lord, I just pray for every person here this morning, everybody in our church family, that there would be a grace upon them and courage to walk into the uncomfortable rooms, to have the uncomfortable conversations, to join a small group where they've never done before, to just be someone that puts himself there in, a, in an environment of trust that says, hey, I want to grow. I want to grow. We want to be a church that so sets the scene for the Holy Spirit to dwell in this place. So Lord, as we love each other well, as we build community, may this glorify your name and may it be somewhere where the Holy Spirit loves to rest. Amen.